You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belabored Episode 170. We're going to be talking to Camille Rivera of the Retail Wholesale Department Store Union about the Amazon apocalypse and what New York should do now. But first, the news. The world of fast fashion has plenty of fast-moving trends, but change in the industry's exploitative labor system is not one of them. Sweatshop labor practices have long dominated the clothing factories at the base of the manufacturing workforce in the Global South. Places like Bangladesh are fraught with poverty wages, coerced labor, child labor abuses, and union busting. And that was pretty much the status quo until a few years ago when something called the Bangladesh Accord on Fire and Building Safety emerged to slowly start providing workers, regulators, and unions with the tools they needed to make factories safer and more humane places to work. The program arose in the aftermath of the massive Rana Plaza factory disaster, which exposed the dangers that many factory workers face every day in Bangladesh and other parts of Asia. The agreement led to legally binding commitments on the part of supplier factories, fashion brands, as well as labor groups to renovate factories, bring them into compliance with basic industry standards, and create a system by which hundreds of factory renovations could take place. That system has been progressing slowly but surely over the past six years or so, but the government is rushing forward a transition plan to put the Accord's operations under the control of a Bangladeshi regulatory agency. Many fear that this agency is just the next step towards dismantling the system altogether. According to the Clean Clothes Campaign, negotiations between signatories of the Bangladesh Accord on Fire and Building Safety and the government of Bangladesh have quote, ground to a halt. Bangladeshi authorities have thus far refused to accept any other outcome than a swift and unconditional handover. The accord is currently entangled in litigation before Bangladesh's Supreme Court. But the leaders of the accord, which is run by a coalition of human rights and labor organizations, argue that the transition should not be pushed prematurely because the agency scheduled to take it over is just wholly incompetent at this point. And there's no sign that the takeover by the agency would guarantee that the remaining work of remediating factories at the 1,600 facilities covered by the Accord would proceed apace. So far, though, the Accord's signatories have at least guaranteed that they will legally stay a part of the agreement through 2021. It was just recently renewed and expanded, and that's for now going to keep brands like H&M and Esprit committed to the labor group's demands. But advocates challenging the Bangladesh government's attempted takeover say that going forward, the Accord would likely lose its DACA office. That would lead to a forced relocation of the headquarters to Amsterdam, and as a result, quote, without permanent engineers on the ground, the Accord would face serious limitations to its ability to monitor and verify remediation progress. That would lead many supplier factories to break their ties to the multinationals who have committed to the goals and standards of the Accord. But although the future of the Accord is currently in jeopardy, advocates hope that international pressure led by labor and the concerned public can protect the Accord that has served as the start of a long-term ethical change in an industry that desperately needs it. The Independent Workers Great Britain is a new, vibrant union in the UK that is organizing gig economy workers and others who are often left out of the labor movement, from video game programmers to university cleaning workers. 
I joined a few of their actions this past week while in London, including a march with three separate unions striking against outsourcing and a demonstration where private hire car drivers, Uber, as well as smaller companies, shut down Parliament Square for three hours, blocking it with their cars. On that demonstration, I spoke with James Farrar, the chair of United Private Hire Drivers branch of the IWGB. So tell me what the sort of, what's the fee, what's the structure here, and why is it all coming down on these drivers? In the last few years, we've almost doubled the number of private hire vehicles mm -hmm. in London. Yeah. And that's been driven by this sort of mushrooming of what you call in New York high supply or high supply operators or mm -hmm. app operators, we call them that, like um, Uber, yeah. like the Daimler product, Viavan. Uh, yeah. the, you know, in the UK, and um, uh, that's led to an oversupply. So in New York, your analysis done by the New York yeah. Taxi and Limousine Commission reckons about 50% oversupply, and I think it is here in London also. Yeah. But the problem is, is that it's now causing congestion, um, problems with air quality right. persistently here in London, and so the mayor wants to tackle that. But we don't have a problem with that. We want to have far fewer minicabs in London also because there isn't enough work. You know, it's death by a thousand cuts. Right. Um, uh, there isn't enough work, and what, what there is is a low yielding. Um, so we want a reduction in capacity and return to a more sensible um, level of, of minicabs. Yeah. But what the mayor is doing is what, what, what he's done is he's effectively pricing us out. Um, so it's a kind of a scorched earth policy, which is yeah. really unfair. Yeah. So what he's done is um, he's going to charge £12.50 per vehicle every day, about £250 a month. And on a £5 an hour yeah. earning, which the average minicab driver does in London, yeah. that's £250 a month. That's about a quarter of your take-home pay is gone in one shot. It's a really severe austerity policy. The problem is, you might say, well, we can pass that on to the customer, but the driver here cannot by law. Yeah. They can't charge that, only the operator can. Yeah. So what we have said to the mayor is, look, it's, it's unfair. Yeah. If you want to reduce capacity in London, just reduce the number of licenses you hand out. Um, he's not prepared to do that. Or yeah. says he doesn't have the power, it's debatable. Um, the other alternative is enforced worker rights, right. because Frank Field, uh, chair of the Parliamentary Work and Pensions Committee, did a study two years ago. He said drivers here in London were working in sweatshop conditions. Yeah. Um, and the mayor hasn't tackled that in two years since that report came out. Um, Frank Field wrote to him again this year, well, a couple of months ago, and said he has the power to enforce operators like Uber to obey worker rights, pay minimum wage, holiday pay, and so on. And that would, that would apply a cost to Uber. Yeah. And so they would ration their supply that way. Right. But he hasn't done that either. Uh, we've suggested that uh, he could provide 4,000 rest areas so that there's essential operating infrastructure for cars here in London who are on, on an app. So if they're done to cruise around in the traffic and get yeah. out of the traffic, yeah. he doesn't want to do that either. Yeah. Um, so we've come up with like four different scenarios of things he could do. He doesn't want to do any of those things. So what we're left with the conclusion is, is that um, minicab drivers are left picking up the environmental costs of consumers and big corporate operators. Um, Uber met the transport minister in October and said that they're absolutely fine with congestion charging. What they don't want is a restriction in licensing. Right. And so what ha what's left, what's happened is, is that the driver's left holding the bag because um, he must pick up the charge. Right. He can't pass it on, and the operators aren't picking it up. Yeah. Uh, it's very unfair.
So this is the, was, did somebody say the seventh week of these demonstrations? Seventh week of these demonstrations, yeah. And I understand they were blocking London Bridge and uh, now we're blocking Parliament Square. Yeah, yeah, we we, uh, we were first outside TFL's headquarters for two mm -hmm. weeks on Blackfriars Road near Blackfriars Bridge. And we occupied the bridge for a while and we actually occupied one of the buildings for a short while. Yeah. And then we moved to London Bridge for two weeks um, and we came here to Parliament Square. Yeah. And I think the reason why we're in Parliament Square here is that the Mayor has gotten powers from Parliament yeah. to manage things like uh, air quality, congestion and so on. Mm -hmm. And um, we believe he's misused these powers because his own impact analysis on his measure, what, he, what he's going to do, shows that actually congestion will be only relieved by 1%, but air quality gets worse. Yeah. And the reason for that is, is that you're shifting traffic from relatively clean private hire vehicles, Priuses, hybrids, yeah. Yeah. to an older, dirtier taxi fleet. So air quality is going to get worse. So how can you justify a policy that delivers almost no reduction in congestion and makes air quality worse and call it an environmental policy that's going to cost most precarious workers in London already in sweatshop conditions 25% of their pay? That's not what Parliament intended when they gave the mayor those powers, and that's why we're here today. Well, it sounds like a microcosm of what's going on in France right now, right? Yeah. The tax on people's cars and uh, not the people who can actually afford to pay for things. Yeah. Call it climate policy and then call everybody, uh, you know, just backward who doesn't support it. Yeah, that's 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 the thing. Um, you don't realize it until you live this life for a while. What that means, you know, um, we, you know, we all want fresh air. I mean, I yeah. <laughs> wrote something last night. The mayor wants fresh air. I mean, um, it can apple pie be far behind, you know. We, we all want these things. Right. We want them more than most people. We're not petrol heads. Yeah. We don't want to get in the way of this. Right. But the way that he's gone about this is just so fundamentally unfair. Yeah. And it does, you know, it does feel like uh, we are political throwaways. We're the disenfranchised. What, he, what he's really doing is he's running a cheap cabs policy. A lot of the young urban professionals love using Uber. Right. It's very cheap fares. Right. Those fares are competing with the buses. They're emptying the buses. Bus ridership is lowest in 10, 15 years yeah. here in London. Um, that's causing a big problem. So, you know, he's bleeding away um, revenue that rightfully should be on public transport. Yeah. Um, he realizes he's got a problem. He's got a problem with congestion and air quality. Yeah. But the people that he's, he's taxing, yeah. they won't fix it because... If you want to, if you want to have a, a, a market mechanism yeah. to to improve the environment, then you've got to attack demand. And he's not attacking demand. He's not making it more expensive, so that people are nudged onto the bus or the, right. or the tube. Yeah. That's not what's happening here. Yeah. So tell me about the driver workforce. Uh, what driver workforce is? Um, Ninety-four percent BME. Yeah. It is seventy-one percent from designated deprived London communities. That's according to TfL's own analysis. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, when you think about it, we've got deprived London communities. Right. These households are losing £4,000 a year. Yeah. That's not money that either those families, those households, or those communities can afford to lose. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's an awfully aggressive, regressive tax. So tell me about this, the union. So we're, we're a branch of the IWGB union. It's a de facto gig economy trade union in Britain. Uh, we specialize in being able to organize workers that either more traditional trade union movement didn't want to or, yeah. or didn't yeah. bother to um, organize. And um, 
you know, it's been, it's been sad and wonderful at the same time. It's, it's yeah. something is terribly wrong when people have to come out here and do this. You know, we, we did a, a reliable um, back of napkin calculation that drivers have collectively given up half a million pounds in revenue so far before today. Yeah. We've had 600,000 today to stage these demos yeah. in lost income, lost revenue. But, you know, this, this is not, you know, yeah. this is this really hurts drivers in terms of what they're giving up here yeah. um, to do these protests. But And it's sad that there's no other avenue open to us but to do this. But on the other hand, it's really good that drivers are finding a voice. You know, in, tra in Transport for London, there's um, 110,000 of us. Yeah. It's 23,000 black taxi drivers, yeah. traditional London cabbies. Yeah. They have five separate trade uh, driver representative bodies recognized on the stakeholder program for Transport for London. Yeah. 110,000 of us have no dedicated trade union representation. They refuse to give it to us. To me, that's institutional racism. That is trying to make sure that uh, drivers are disenfranchised, remain disenfranchised, remain in sweatshop conditions. But we're turning that tide because people have had enough yeah. uh, of unfair treatment by the regulator. What has been the response to all this from uh, the mayor? Well, so far very little. We're going to meet with the Transport Commissioner on Thursday and we will see what comes from that meeting. And we will be considering further legal action between now and the deadline in April. And if, if it goes live in April, you know, my, my feeling is, is that drivers have to be made whole. Yeah. They can't afford, you know, so somebody is going to have to step forward and pay for this. Yeah. Either the operators, the Transport for London is going to have to remove it. But we, we cannot accept the situation where we're left holding the bag. Yeah. And that's what these protests are about. Anything else people should know? I suppose the thing that's maybe different here in London yeah. from New York yeah. is that the mayor of New York understood the problem. Understood the problem the economics of oversupply when you're not carrying the cost yeah. of your true cost to your business. Right. And he attacked it in a pincer move. He protected the worker rights and minimum wage of drivers at $17.25 an hour yeah. on the one hand. And he also froze capacity and licensing in London. Right to reach this equilibrium and it worked, it floated up and prices have, have gone up in New York and yeah. drivers are maybe able to earn a living. Yeah. And that took, what, seven suicides in New York for that to happen. Here we've had no such sympathy, humanity, understanding from the regulator. And this is why I say they were completely disenfranchised. Uh, a, this is a Labour mayor who's yeah. done this. Yeah. The Tory candidate, Sean Bailey, yeah. was when we had a motion, it was a motion passed in the London Assembly two years ago yeah. to make worker rights a condition of operator licensing for Uber. Mm -hmm. And Sean Bailey, the uh, Conservative candidate for mayor, was the sole only person to vote against that motion. So we are <sighs> completely yeah. disenfranchised. The Labour mayor has done this. And the Tory candidate is the only one that voted against yeah. worker rights as a condition of license for Uber drivers. So the situation is quite bleak in London, and that's why we're on the streets, because we have to get people to start listening to us, because the normal trade union recognition is denied, yeah. political process isn't working, the challenger isn't looking much better, so we need a breakthrough. And that was James Farrer of the United Private Hire Drivers, IWGB. Our current political landscape may seem to be hostile to organized labor, but 2019 may yet turn out to be the year of the strike. 
and the rising anti-Trump opposition, which coincides with the presidential campaign, has been emboldened by a fresh wave of union militancy. The surge of labor activism recently put Erie, Pennsylvania on the map as a Rust Belt town in revolt. About 1,700 workers at the Wabtec locomotive manufacturing plant went on strike last Tuesday. They were members of the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers of America, locals 506 and 618, and they represented a union with a proud leftist history and the kind of workforce that is increasingly rare these days in America, a solid unified manufacturing base that provides stable careers, family-sustaining wages, and a strong collective bargaining system. That was what the workers were fighting for, and that was what the workers had for many years under its previous owner, GE. But the recent takeover by Wabtec has led to contract negotiations breaking down, and the union reported that they were, quote, not able to convince the company to negotiate an acceptable short-term agreement that preserves the wages, benefits, and working conditions that had been previously negotiated with GE. The union was specifically opposing Wabtec's proposal to destabilize the scheduling system, imposed a tiered wage system that would have undermined standards for future workers and generally undermined the overall working conditions. The strike has been backed by a notable ally. Presidential hopeful Bernie Sanders, who issued a letter to the company in support of the workers. I spoke with Jonathan Kassam, the UE Communications Director, about what the union is pushing for now and what the strike means both for workers in Erie and for labor politics today. So one of the big issues in the strike is, uh, so when Wabtec, the new owners, took over on Monday, they insisted on imposing uh, terms and conditions that were drastically different from the existing uh, GE uh, contract. And one of those terms and conditions is the ability for the management to impose mandatory overtime on people and to uh, change work schedules, right? So things like 12-hour shifts, things like Wednesday through Sunday weeks where you know your, your days off aren't the actual weekend. I think what our members are perhaps most upset about is this sense of the boss wants control over, you know, wants them to be at, at, at the boss's beck and call. This kind of like control over every moment of your life if you're a worker, as opposed to the kind of defined schedules that they have now. Not that they don't, not that our members don't work lots of overtime. There's over 80% folks of the folks work overtime. There's no problem getting folks to work overtime. It's just really this question of whether the boss controls controls and can mandate you to to stay late or come in on a Saturday. Another piece that is part of the terms and conditions that WebTech is trying to impose, or I guess did impose uh, yesterday, is a permanent second tier, uh, permanently lower wages for new hires and for folks who are recalled from layoff. And those uh, lower wages are, uh, it varies a little bit by job classification, but up to 38% lower than what folks are making now. So really drastic reduction in wages for new hires. And this is, you know, this is a really intergenerational plant in a lot of ways. Uh, I was at their membership meeting last week and, you know, someone asked like how many people had parents who worked in the plant and how many people had children who worked in the shop. And, you know, a lot of people raised their hands. There were even some folks who had grandparents who worked in the shop. You know, people are really unwilling to sell out new hires in part because that they literally feel like they'd be selling out their own children, right? And then also the big bone of contention is WebTech is, wants the right to use temps to do up to 20% of the work in the plant. 
And so folks are really, you know, not only sort of understand that that would undermine the union and, and undermine their own wages and working conditions, but there's a real sense of community pride and like not, this is sort of like also the, the best employer in Erie and they want to keep it that way. You know, I think they have some pride that they make the best locomotives in the world and that, they, that the plan is profitable and that it provides good jobs and it supports the community and they want to do everything they can to you know, avoid creating massive numbers of new temp jobs instead of good jobs in their community. And these workers have all been there for a pretty long time, I imagine? I mean, there's a mix, but yeah, it's a, there's a lot of quite high seniority folks. There are, some, I mean, some of the skilled trades uh, have, have some younger folks in. But, mm-hmm. And so um, is, is this the first time the plant has gone on strike? It's the first time in 50 years it's been an open-ended strike. In 1969, there was a 102-day national strike against General Electric. So that was the the last time folks were out for a long period of time. They did have a one-day strike over health insurance in, I believe, 2003 Mm -hmm. uh, in the run-up to their national contract negotiations. The strike is going on indefinitely, but, I mean, do you have just general plans in place for contingency plans, what to do if this drags on? Is there a strike fund? I mean, So Local 506, uh, our our local there, has has a large strike that they've built up over the years. There's no reason this can't be settled. You know, it's it's not like one of those situations where, People are, you know, completely far apart. Have, you know, I think our members are interested in continuing the plant's profitability. Again, it's profitable under the, you know, under the GE terms and conditions. They understand that Labtech is is a different company. It's not going to be the same contract as GE, and um, you know, will take some time to negotiate something that works. But they're, you know, they're also pretty insistent that. Uh, that they aren't going to work mandatory over time and don't want to sell out, don't want to you know, create a permanent second tier of lower wages. We offered an interim agreement last week to basically like find something that both sides could live with while we keep the plant running, while we, you know, while we negotiate the larger contract. And we thought we were pretty close and a couple of times, uh, but WebTech walked away. If it, if, if it doesn't get settled soon, you know, we'll take care of our people, make sure that, you know, no one's losing houses or having unpaid medical bills and so forth, we uh, will ramp up the pressure on the company. We you know, have close ties with the largest manufacturing union in Canada, Unifor, with the, sort of the militant manufacturing unions in France and Italy, Fégeté and, and Fiom. We'll probably sort of ramp up some international pressure. As Senator Sanders noted in his statement today, LabTech has over 50 contracts with the federal government. You know, I think that's a point of leverage, potential leverage. They have contracts with a number of municipalities. In addition to hopefully supporting workers' rights, also, you know, want their locomotives. I don't think investors will be really particularly happy about this strike dragging on. Can you explain to us, like, sort of the significance of this strike in in this particular industry and kind of situate that in terms of where American manufacturing is now? Um, And maybe within that context, just talk a little bit about the role of UE as a union, because it has quite a unique history um, in terms of uh, being one of the more militant uh, labor groups. Right. This is really, in many ways, you know, one of the, the classic good blue-collar jobs in the Rust Belt, and they're good because the industry was organized in the 1930s and 40s, right? 
General Electric was one of the, uh, and sort of electrical manufacturing was one of the big three industries in the, the organization of basic industry in the 30s and 40s that really created the, the power of the CIO and the, um, what, what is often referred to as the middle class uh, in, in, the, in the country, um, which is really just like working class people having decent jobs, right? And folks are fighting to defend that idea that you actually don't have to have a race to the bottom. You can actually, through uh, workers organizing, you can actually sort of insist that industry you know, competes through productivity and innovation instead of competing through low wages. And so it's really, you know, I think folks are fighting to defend this idea of, of kind of high wage manufacturing. The locomotive production is actually growth industry and with you know even greater potential growth with things like the green new deal on the horizon we hope and this is you know when you, when you think about you know transitioning our economy this is one of the places uh, where you still have a group of like highly skilled workers who could do that who could be like you know sort of like detroit was the arsenal of democracy in world war ii erie and g and now web tech transportation is is the kind of infrastructure that can be, you know, one of the engines of transition in the economy. That was Jonathan Kassam, UE Communications Director. As the teacher strike wave rolls on, West Virginia went back out last week and Oakland remains on strike. The Oakland teachers are calling for more funding and raises that will allow them to continue to live in their rapidly gentrifying school district. Last December, I sat down with Oakland teacher Tim Marshall at his school, Melrose Leadership Academy, which is a bilingual K-8 school, and we talked about the problems and solutions for the district. So Oakland has the elevation uh, index, sort of, mm-hmm. you call it, right, where you have the kids down there, they have their neighborhood schools, a lot of times those schools are uh, lack the resources mm-hmm. that the Hill schools do because of the parents' capacity to fundraise, yeah. but also because they have more needs. Yeah. Um, there's all kinds right, of intangible yeah, sure. or, or, or disguised needs that we don't get to surface right. and recognize. And for instance, all throughout East Oakland, there's a lot of lead in the ground. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you find is that kids have lead poisoning, yeah. kids have things that affect their ability to learn and their behaviors yeah. and stuff like that. So we have more needs. We have kids yeah. who come from high poverty, we have kids who come from families that uh, you know, can't make rent and the stress and the anxiety of that makes it you know, more challenging. So you would need more resources even if it's a tie mm-hmm. between yeah. the flatlands and right, the hills, because exactly. they all, every, that's equity, right? Yeah. right. But that's not equity if you have to meet the needs of kids who are hungry, yeah. kids who didn't sleep last night because their parents took them to work with them. I mean, I have kids in my class, like, like well, what time do you go to sleep? He goes, I went to work with my mom until oh. 2 in the morning. I yeah. said, okay, put your head down, right? This is not going to happen today yeah. for now. Yeah. You need to close your eyes for a little bit. Yeah. Um, and those neighborhoods, there's so much violence that it's also tra- traumatizing. Mm-hmm. When I taught there, I taught at Melrose Elementary School, which is not this one, but the, yeah. the precursor of it. Right. Um, like three years in a row, I had parents of kids that were murdered, yeah. right? And so that's not just traumatizing to those kids, but yeah. it's traumatizing to everybody, everybody. around those mm-hmm. kids. So a lot, of, a lot of the talk inside of education at least in Oakland now is like you have to have like a trauma lens on mm-hmm. kids like, you know, 
yeah. approach kids who have had that kind of traumatic stuff in the same way that you approach like middle class kids. Yeah, for sure. So those are some of the things that make it challenging. Like the the world is turned upside down, as you know. But it's like the to the rich, they have their own ability to fundraise their own way, and right. to the poor, they are limited by their own lack of funds, but also by the needs that are pressing. Right. So this school, this school is kind of a hybrid of that, where you have some, like in, it's in my class, I, I don't really know a statistical breakdown, but I bet it's like 40% middle class, 60% working class, and then you saw some of the newer immigrant kids who are really, yeah. you know, living in, I don't know, might be a lot, living in a family in a room or something like that, so they have a whole, a whole range of, of uh, backgrounds, yeah. but this school is a nice leveling thing, and the bilingual aspect helps it become a leveling thing. Mm -hmm. So teachers are finally saying we've had enough and it turns out that you know whatever people's sort of opinion of public schools were mm -hmm. at large is most people like their kids teacher. Yeah. Uh, and we have that and I will tell you the secret recipe for, for, um, for the defense of the public schools that we have done here yeah. and maybe the secret ingredient for winning a strike is that even more so than, than what you just said, but the respect and the, the sense of importance that's given to education by immigrant populations, especially mm -hmm. from Mexico and Latin yeah. America. Yeah. We get like, you know, just parents that are really supportive, mm -hmm. really supportive and appreciate your uh, efforts, right? Mm -hmm. They think, and it might be sort of true, that you could have done anything, right? You went to college. Yeah. You could have made banker money or something like that. But you're working with these kids in these in, in yeah. these neighborhoods, yeah. and they're sort of right. Right? People have more latitude to mm -hmm. to move around. But I have um, I have respect for those families that are that yeah. are so committed to their kids' education that they just do. I mean, the people here that are working class families, yeah. they might be working two or three jobs. Yeah. And they're trying to make it in this in rapidly gentrifying city, yeah. and they're they're trying to do the best for their kids. So sending them to schools like this is really I, I feel good to be part of that because yeah. it's at least trying to give them back honestly like some yeah. some seriousness that you meet their seriousness with your seriousness. Yeah. I don't know what else you can do. That was Oakland teacher Tim Marshall, recorded last December before the strike began. So by now you've heard about the spectacular collapse of the Amazon deal in New York City, the big plan to bring the famous HQ2 to Queens has mercifully been laid to rest, at least for now. But it does leave many questions about how this was allowed to happen, what went wrong with the deal, could it have ever worked out? Does Amazon and corporations like it have any real place in the city's landscape? And what should labor do about the power of huge corporations today? Now we're going to hear from Camille Rivera. She is National Political and Legislative Director for the Retail Wholesale Department Store Union. She helped lead a coalition of labor groups and community groups across the city to oppose the Amazon deal, to make demands, and to get our legislators to listen. So we have this last-minute withdrawal of Amazon. 
did it come as a surprise to you that Amazon did turn around at the end when it seemed like, you know, everything in the city was ultimately heading towards finalizing this deal with them? It did not come as a surprise. I think Amazon has a very clear picture that they make the rules on how it should relate to cities and states that they do business with. And it wasn't a surprise to me that they did not want to engage in a more proactive way to ensure that, um, you know, there was a space for community and labor to have a voice that ensured that all workers, uh, including their own, the 600,000, and particularly the ones in New York, were allowed to either join a union or be able to express that they wanted to join a union. In the end, what do you think was the final sort of straw that broke the camel's back? What do you think, you know, ultimately sealed their decision not to engage with New York? And was there a sticking point? I mean, I think the biggest issue is, you know, and and I don't think that this is over, right? I, I think that this is a very smart company that has made its business on, you know, getting what it wants. And I, and, but I think the fact that from a branding perspective, we were community and labor were highlighting the real problems and the, the real business model um, that they incorporated, whether it was, you know, working with ICE to identify undocumented immigrants and separate families, whether it was their history in Seattle where they have not been good neighbors, or whether it's the fact that there's strikes all across the globe in countries that are in heavily union cities. These are spaces that have more of a union density than New York or the rest of the country have and are refusing to allow their workers to have a voice. So in my mind, you know, I think that was kind of the they just they understood that from a narrative perspective that this was problematic. I don't know if you saw the letter that was ultimately issued as kind of a postmortem on the deal from sort of the government's perspective, but I think um, they were saying that at the end of the day that the talks broke down because um, there were some demands around organized labor. To what extent do you think that was true in terms of just um, the unions playing a role and, and perhaps demanding a specific kind of representation either directly at Amazon or in the negotiations And was that what you guys wanted? I think that it's really important for governments to ensure that they have economic development in their cities and their states, right? And I think the problem is the race to the bottom. And I think we as a state and as even a country feel that the more corporate dollars we give and the more open we are, that that's somehow going to ensure, even if we're in a progressive space like New York, quote unquote, that that will change the behavior of a company like Amazon. We don't agree. You know, I think our position has been pretty clear that a company um, has to be held accountable um, through its government um, that is, you know, participating with and partnering with and the constituents where that, which they represent. I think that the jobs that they can bring are good jobs in their space, right? But I also think that we have to be mindful about, you know, what else it brings, right? If, if they're good jobs for every worker, right? Are we conquering and dividing so that we can get what we want? And that's what the race to the bottom is about. It's about, you know, how can I split and divide a movement to ensure that I get what I want? And we shouldn't be thinking like that. We have more power than we think we do. 
we should be getting all these companies that get subsidies from our tax dollars to investing in our transportation, to investing in affordable housing, and to investing into the impact that they're going to have, right? Not everybody makes $150,000, and not everybody's going to be able to have a building service worker job or a trade job. Yeah. How do we ensure that, you know, all of the workers that they make money off of are protected? And I think Amazon has a very insidious history and model, and particularly with their contracts and with their contracting out and the, and the delivery services of exploiting workers. It's pretty documented. And I think we have to, like, do better with holding companies like this more accountable. Can you talk more about what was the coalition that came together in the end? Because, you know, there were clearly many different perspectives on this, but ultimately the end, a lot of the opposition was surprisingly diverse. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a coalition of labor and community. I think that we underestimate the power of collective organizing. I think that one of the things that people say is, you know, the people to the left are radical and, you know, there's more common sense people that are thinking about this. But the truth of the matter is the issue of organizing workers is not something that just came to light because the Amazon deal of HQ2 happened. Many community groups and unions were coming together, having a discussion and the future of work nationally about how our workers need to be protected. How do we ensure that companies like Amazon who set the tone right? They do egregious things. They're able to deflate the market so that they can be able to lower their prices to put people out of business. As I said before, they have relationships with ICE. Um, And, you know, 600,000 workers across the world aren't allowed to organize. So, you know, I think we had been having a lot of discussions about how do we make sure that workers who are coming to us and saying, look, I want to join a union, I want to have a voice, be a part of a larger conversation around how corporations and companies are held to a higher standard when they're making profits. And so the HQ2 was just an anomaly that came, and we had no choice but to actually have a force a conversation. And it's sometimes not easy being on, a, on an island, but I think we did what was right. We pushed back with community and labor and other labor coalition um, groups to ensure that the conversation and the narrative did not go away, that respective to your opinions, we're not saying you shouldn't come. We're saying that you should actually change your behavior and your, um, you know, your model and your business model is not going to work here in New York. One critique um, in the aftermath of the withdrawal of Amazon that I've heard is even from the perspective of being critical of the deal in the first place, they said, you know, wouldn't it have been better if Amazon had decided to heed your demands and, you know, change some of their practices or, um, you know, at least make, make some of the concessions that you were demanding and stayed? Or did you think in the end it was ultimately better on balance? that they just pulled that all together? Look, nobody wants a company to leave and take their jobs with them, right, when they're proposing those things. I think it's a shame. I think this is Amazon's fault. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that decided that they would rather cut and run than deal with the real issues that are actually real problems in their business model and in how they staff their workforce. This is something that goes not just from the distribution and fulfillment centers and delivery, but this goes all the way to how they treat their staff even in the highest level. There's a lot of documented writings and statements about high-level, high-tech workers who are overworked and, you know, have real problems. And so I think it's their responsibility to take an, a, a deeper look in themselves about how they're actually responding to communities in which they reside. And they've decided to take that position themselves. I mean, you can see that all over the world. 
About the coalition, I mean, it, while it was a diverse opposition, all of organized labor across the city was uh, not of, of one mind about Amazon. There were divisions among the unions. Can you talk a little bit about what was behind that? What were the politics um, that were involved? Because some of the bigger unions did, in fact, support the deal. I'm not going to speak to the, the, you know, the positions of, you know, how, how what the, you know, the politics were of the decisions they made. I mean, they made the decisions that were on behalf of their membership to support a deal that allowed their workers the right to organize. And I would argue that all workers have a right to organize. And that I think from a collective perspective, this is not just one specific small parcel of land. This is a large swath of land that is going to change the face of Queens and New York City, right? This is kind of like the Robin Moses style of development. How do we make sure that our, you know, our communities, labor, and all other workers are just as protected? And so, you know, I, I think that's kind of the larger conversation that I think we need to have. Amazon, as you said, is a huge global workforce, certainly not specific to New York City. Were you in touch with the other groups around the world? Yeah, I think we've had a lot of discussions with, you know, we're part of a larger coalition globally around Amazon and, you know, with our president being the head of e-commerce, um, which is the global union, is, you know, we definitely share stories about what's going on. And I think quite clear, we actually had two of the large global labor leaders come to New York to actually talk about what was happening across the world. And so there's definitely conversations and this is what we're seeing everywhere. There was that ridiculous kind of rigmarole um, in the lead up to deciding on New York as the HQ2 location. All these different cities kind of, you know, falling over each other to impress Amazon. We can be sure that Amazon's probably going to find another city to try to strike a deal with. Since we don't want this to turn into kind of a not in my backyard kind of battle, how do you want other cities to respond? Or I reject the premise of not in my backyard, right? This is not a, a homeless shelter that's coming to a community where people have different views, which you know I obviously would say build a homeless shelter. This is a larger conversation about a company who has so much dominance over the world commercially in so many various sectors. Um, and I would say fight back. I would say fight back and have a voice in the process. Um, nobody's saying you can't come here. Nobody's saying don't come to New York um, or don't come to Virginia go or you know to Nashville or, or to Germany. We're saying specifically be a responsible company. Do better and be kind of a, you know, do better in how to create a process that works because we're in a different state of our country right now where people actually need a voice. And you don't have to be a less progressive to want to make sure that your tax dollars are used to ensure that you get something back. Because that's the whole goal of taxes, right? You're supposed to get something back. So when you get a subsidy, when you get something like that, you should actually make sure that you have a process, that your community is involved. And I think that's the most important thing, a message that I think folks should get. What do you think about the way that New York City elected officials responded you know, it's kind of a polarizing issue, um, but we did see the mayor and the governor uh, come down firmly in support of this um, with some pushback from other local lawmakers. Um, did, did their political response to this surprise you? And going forward, what should we demand from our elected officials in the future so that we don't go down this path again? Well, first of all, I don't think this is over. I think you have to continue ensuring that your elected officials are held accountable. I think you know, there is a responsibility to have economic development in our city, in our state. 
to make sure that there's dollars coming in to deal with the economy, but they also have to be responsible economic development. And I think that's what we're all saying. And I think that many electives came on the right side of this. I think all of them want you know, to ensure that we continue economic development, but it's about good jobs. It's about every worker, and it's not just about a few. Going forward, there is a sense that Amazon's pulling out, but as you noted, we still do need economic development in the city. What is the kind of economic development you think would be fair for for all New Yorkers and and for workers especially? Um, Where should we be putting that money instead of, you know, giving away $3 billion in tax breaks to massive corporations? People have this discussion that this is not real money, you know, like this is just a tax break. But the truth of the matter is we've done these numbers in the past. And when we crunched these numbers around these as-of-right taxes and all the stuff that we were getting, we actually found out that Amazon could actually get a check cut back to them, right? And so we have to make sure that the dollars that they're investing are doing the right thing. And I think future economic developments have to ensure worker, community, and housing and infrastructure protections. And we just have to do better. You know, this race to the bottom of just giving stuff away and hoping that something will come back is unreal. We think we've seen Tesla in Buffalo. We've seen the Foxconn. We've seen other deals across the country that has not produced real jobs. So how do we ensure that sort of strong, tight economic development that is responsible? Has, has there been a good example of um, some kind of you know, community benefits agreement or some kind of arrangement for an economic development deal that you think could be a potential model or should be the type of stuff that we should be pushing for instead of these massive tax breaks? I mean, I'm not a policy wonk. I will tell you that yeah. I'm sure that there's models out there that could do this. I think there are definitely opportunities to craft and be bold and bold new thinking. Look, you know, FIFA 15 didn't just come from labor. That FIFA 15 came from community and labor collectively coming together and demanding something different, right? And I think that is a space where you actually have to move forward with bold ideas. And a bold idea could ensure that from the federal government to the state to the city, that we actually create checks and balances to create more of a thorough process. And I think it can be done. I think that our governments and our leaders, um, you know, should actually look broader about that type of thinking. And I think there is real opportunity towards finding a real balance that works for everyone. No one's ever going to agree. But I think we could all agree that if we're going to give tax breaks to big corporations like Amazon, they should be responsible. Beyond Amazon, like Amazon as a retailer is having a big impact in the way retail is done. And of course, that comes back to um, the work that you do day to day um, organizing in the retail sector. Um, Do you have a sense of how sort of the new business model that Amazon is putting forward is shaping the labor landscape in New York City and beyond in retail? And and how should labor, how should community groups be responding to that? Studies that have basically shown that Amazon and the future of work and online commerce has had a devastating impact to brick and mortar stores to the point where they're actually decimating communities because people can't keep up with the competition of what Amazon produces and does. So my sense is, you know, we need to really think hard about how we're ensuring that there's a balance. Economies change and workforce changes over time. The question becomes, how do you create a space where there is a balance for both. And that was Camille Rivera of the Retail Wholesale Department Store Union talking about the collapse of the Amazon deal. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. 
Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. Now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. My pick for ARG is by Matthew Desmond, Princeton University professor, writing in the New York Times Magazine for their special Future of Work edition. It's called Dollars on the Margins. So what does $15 an hour buy you today? Desmond examines the power of the $15 minimum wage from a sociological perspective and paints a picture of a slowly emerging consensus among many progressives that a decent wage isn't just an economic boost or a temporary stimulus for the economy, it's actually a social remedy. There are even some studies that explicate what we intuitively already kind of know about what it means when you're paid a little more an hour. Desmond writes, quote, a 2011 national study showed that low-skilled workers reported fewer unmet medical needs in states with higher minimum wage rates. In high-wage states, workers were better able to pay for the care that they needed. In low-wage states, workers skipped medical appointments. Studies have found strong evidence that increases to the minimum wage are associated with decreased rates of smoking among low-income workers. Desmond concludes, quote, poverty can be unrelenting, shame-inducing, and exhausting. When people live so close to the bone, a small setback can quickly spiral into a major trauma. Modest wage increases have a profound impact on people's well-being and happiness. Poverty will never be ameliorated on the cheap. This truth should not prevent us from acknowledging how powerfully workers respond to relatively small income boosts. In a way, there's something a little bit crass about this idea that all you need to do is inject cash into poor people's pockets and magically they start to do better. They get this Pavlovian response that enables them to achieve a better quality of life and become more productive. And a higher wage seems like a simplistic way to deal with these systemic social problems, perhaps. But by that same token, it's an indictment of contemporary capitalism that our extremely sophisticated economy fails to provide even this most basic, simple resource. Enough money to cover your basic needs and live with some degree of economic security. Maybe tackling poverty isn't as hard as all of the think tanks and policymakers often say it is. It's the size of our unmet needs that seems so frustrating and intractable. But often, in the immediate term at least, the solution is a lot more straightforward than we might expect. Just pay people enough to live on. And yeah, they live. Desmond looks at the broader public health implications of a living wage. And by the way, $15 an hour is considerably lower than what it takes to make a living wage in many, many cities today. Anyway, in addition to improved lifestyle habits like less smoking, people might be able to afford, say, fresh produce at the local grocery store instead of packaged foods. Maybe they can afford to take a little free time to walk in the park, play sports with their kids. Maybe over the long run, they can get a gym membership move to a better neighborhood with cleaner air, access to green space, and no lead in the house paint or in their tap water. And most of all, they are relieved of the toxic stress of chronically low wages. But the article also depicts a deeper dimension of $15 an hour. It's fundamentally about dignity. Desmond quotes one black hospital cafeteria worker in Pittsburgh who earns just shy of $15 an hour and yet still struggles to get by. I really love my job, says Alexandria Cutler. I feel like when they appreciate me, that makes me feel great. 
but when the pay is low, I feel that they don't see us as valuable at all, unquote. For Cutler, that sense of indignation has been an inspiration of sorts. It's driving the campaign that she and her co-workers are currently leading to get a union at their workplace. That's the other half of the famous Fight for 15 movement, remember. Their demand is actually for Fight for $15 and a union. Without a union, even relatively high wage means a lot less to a worker because it does not come with the kind of economic stability that allows one to live with security and peace of mind. But $15 an hour does get many workers a good part of the way to dignity because it provides a basic economic foundation on which one can build by making more radical demands. That could mean a union at your workplace, it could mean achieving universal health care for the whole country, could mean lobbying for a progressive tax system. Covering the basics of survival gets us to a point in life where we feel secure and optimistic enough to aspire and to demand things that won't just help us survive, but actually will enable us to thrive. A good wage, in other words, can lead to a virtuous cycle, where we start to value ourselves the way we see ourselves to be valued by others. But all that starts with trust in the social contract the job offers us. For a fair contract with your employer, you need to feel recognized as equally worthy of respect. That is, of course, hard to come by in today's world, but it's especially difficult for low-wage workers. In this sense, Desmond concludes, quote, a higher minimum wage is powerful medicine. Yet, as the $15 wage standard spreads nationwide, we can see that making a few bucks more per hour isn't a prescription so much for poor individuals. It doesn't fix individual people so much as it moves us to a place where we start to collectively heal a morally impoverished society. And for now, wages help, but we're still a long way from curing that which truly ails us, a broken economic system. The discussion around sex work has changed rapidly over the past year or so, and now New Yorkers have launched a campaign to fully decriminalize the sex trade in the state. Friend of the podcast, Melissa Jira Grant, has a piece up at the appeal titled The Police Act Like We're Nothing. A new coalition of people in the sex trades wants New York to become the first state to fully decriminalize their work. Current and former sex workers and their allies have focused on decriminalization as part of a broader movement to end the criminalization of people of color, and particularly transgender people of color and low-income people more broadly. The opposition that coalesced around SESTA and FOSTA last year, national legislation that targeted websites where sex workers advertise, and the -the on-the-ground organizing in over-policed and queer communities in New York, is now taking a big, historic step forward and pushing for legislation that would change the status of their labor. Describing the current situation, Melissa writes, quote, Queens, where Garcia was arrested, has long borne the brunt of the city's anti-prostitution policing, which disproportionately impacts women of color. Transgender Latinx sex workers and those profiled as sex workers are arrested on the streets of Jackson Heights, for example, and charged with loitering for the purposes of prostitution. Massage workers, predominantly of East Asian descent, are subject to police raids in Flushing. Those raids have had deadly consequences. In 2017, 38-year-old Yang Song, an immigrant from China, fell from the window of a massage establishment on 40th Road in Flushing during a police sting. Queen's DA Richard Brown released a report in 2018 that placed no fault on police for Song's death. The death of Ms. Song is sad and tragic, Brown said in a statement that accompanied the report's release. I have always maintained that prostitution is a degrading and humiliating industry. But advocates blame the raids of massage businesses. Whether indirectly or directly, her death is on the NYPD, said Red, now a member of Decrim NY at the time. End quote. 
The coalition, which includes GMHC, the New York City Anti-Violence Project, Make the Road New York, the Sex Workers Project, Brooklyn Defender Services, the Democratic Socialists of America NYC Queer Caucus, Survived and Punished, and the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, among others, has allies in new state senators Julia Salazar, herself a DSA member, and Jessica Ramos, along with longtime state legislator Richard Gottfried, best known for his work on statewide single-payer health care legislation. They also have a candidate for Queens District Attorney, Tiffany Caban, on their side. But they will face plenty of opposition from those who think that diverting sex workers into services is the best way to solve the problem, along with the police who just continue to make arrests. Melissa writes, quote, When it comes to what the police should do, Biani Garcia said, I always say that sex work is work. It's not easy. Just leave us alone. Garcia continued, With all she had experienced, I want to change the law. I wanted to change the police, end quote. That's all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for more on teacher strikes, manufacturing strikes, and every other kind of strike. Thank you again to Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis for editing us and making us sound good. And even more thank you to all of you for listening to us and for rating us on iTunes, sharing us with your friends, promoting us on Twitter and Facebook, or generally propagandizing on our behalf. Extra special thanks to our belabored sustaining members. Just $5 a month gets you an excellent belabored tote bag in our eternal gratitude. And we also have some fabulous new Descent t-shirts if you sign up to be a Solidarity subscriber to the magazine. You can find out more about being a belabored sustaining member at descentmagazine.org slash belabored dash membership or about the Solidarity subscription program and t-shirts at descentmagazine.org slash solidarity. You can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you're an Amazon worker or sex worker, a teacher on strike or off it, an Uber driver or factory worker. You can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. We'll be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.